Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be able to worship together today. Let's begin with a word of prayer and go before our Lord. Father in heaven, what a blessing it is, God, to be able to worship you and open your word. Father, we are embarking now on a very rich journey, O God, as we think through Matthew's gospel and we read, O God, what you have written for us about your precious son, Jesus Christ, who came, O God, and who we remember at this Christmas period, how God became a man and entered into our existence so that, God, we might be restored to a right relationship with you. So, Father, I pray, God, as we worship and as we sing and as we look at this text, O God, today, I pray, Father, that you be glorified by hearts, God, that are here eagerly, God, to await your presence. Help us, God, to be like old Simeon, O Lord, who looked at the Christ child in his hands and said, At last, Lord, your servant can depart in peace, for I have seen, God, your salvation that you have prepared. Let nothing else, God, in this world be as important to us, God, as being able to look into the wondrous face of Jesus Christ. So, Father, would you awaken in our hearts that sense of wonder and joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by uh, reading uh, our text of Scripture today. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. You know, I sometimes hear people come and talk to me about their excitement to want to read the Bible, 
And in some cases, they start with the book of Genesis, and they find that interesting. And Exodus, a little less so, but by the time they get to Leviticus, and they start reading about the laws of burnt offerings and temple regulations, they look at that and say, you've completely lost me at this point. I have no idea what is going on. And they get bored. Now, after having read that, I know that what some of you are thinking here, like, how on earth is he going to preach a sermon on a list of names? You know, and uh, I... I thought about that and I'm like, I know why we as North Americans think that. Um, it's because of the way that we perceive the world with our 21st century, you know, Canadian mindset that views, uh, our, our world and genealogies and lists of names like this is absolutely boring and irrelevant. But this is not so, I think, across the rest of the world. You know, for those of you who are either new to Christianity or maybe you've wandered in here today, I want to say at the outset, if you're curious about what the Bible is, let me tell you first what the Bible is not, okay? The Bible, first of all, is not a self-help book that was written to an audience of 21st century Canadians struggling with first world problems, okay? Now, to give you an idea of the type of problems that we face and experience in the world, I was doing some reading this last week, and I discovered a new one called low battery anxiety, I don't know if you know what this is, but it's a phenomenon, according to the smartphone giant LG, that afflicts some 90% of smartphone users. And what happens is that when your battery dips below 20% and you see the red icon on your phone, it induces a certain level of stress and panic in individuals. In some cases, it's so severe that people actually will turn their car around to go home and to get a charger, resulting in them being late or skipping appointments, or even worse, uh, uh, not being on time for their work. In some cases, actually, it's so bad that it's actually destroyed relationships because they have ended up cursing or swearing at an individual like that was their romantic interest for a failure to respond to them called ghosting in this world and uh, not realizing that actually the problem was that their cell phone had died and they weren't actually actively ignoring them. It's a very serious phenomenon to North Americans. But around the world, where they don't have phones or live the way that we do, connected at 30-second intervals to everything else in North America, they don't care about this kind of stuff. It's not important to us. So when people come to me and they talk about Christianity or they talk about the Bible and they say things like, I can't possibly believe that the Bible is God's word. And I say, why is that? And they'll say things like, well, it's archaic. It's outdated. It doesn't address women's rights. Why doesn't it say anything about climate change? And to that, I want to say to them, you need to hang on a second here. Because are you telling me that if the Bible doesn't address the particular needs that you think are important, that it can't possibly then be the Word of God? Are you saying that your 21st century Canadian mindset is the final arbiter and the standard for judging this book and determining whether or not it's true? What if another culture, according to what they value, looks at this Bible and says, well, of course it makes sense to me. This must be the word of God. Are you saying that your culture and your narrow worldview in this particular age and time is the final decider of whether this word, which claims to be God's word, is actually that? Most of us wouldn't go that far to say that. We would not be so arrogant as to say, that my culturally informed expectations of what is right and wrong get to determine the validity of a book that claims to be timeless and the product of God himself. You know, in the 1960s, Des and Jenny um, 
Oatridge went to live amongst the Binumerian people of uh, Papua New Guinea and to translate the Bible for them into their language as part of a Wycliffe endeavor to put the Bible uh, into their mother tongue. And now, after some time, uh, Des, who was translating the work, uh, had finished the Gospel of Matthew, but he had actually left out the first 17 verses, thinking that he would come back to address them at a later time. When the project was nearing its completion, he realized that those 17 verses were undone. He called his native translator to help him work on these verses so they could get the last bit of it out and into print. The translator, Sissia, sat down with him and uh, sailed through the verses as usual, but this time his translator reading the verses was unusually silent. Not knowing what had happened, he just continued on with it. The translator didn't make any comments about the translation of the verse. He stood up afterwards and he left and he told Des afterwards, please come to a meeting tonight afterwards at my house. It's important. Now, Des wasn't sure what had happened at this point because this was highly unusual. He didn't know what this meeting was about. Had he offended someone? What happened here? So absolutely mystified, he goes to this meeting at Sissia's house, and in the evening he discovers that the entire house is completely packed out. There's no place to basically stand, and everybody is standing like and, and crammed in on here. The translator begins by speaking and addressing the crowd and tells them that um, uh, that they just finished translating Matthew's gospel this morning, and they had done the first 17 verses, but he could not explain it to them he said that I need you actually just to read it and to have all of you here hear it for yourself, what we translated this morning. And so Des, not understanding what was going on, stood up and he read to a dead silent room. These, he said, are the ancestors of Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And as he read, he realized that their eyes were growing as large as saucers. And actually, they were so interested in what he was reading, they actually began to press on him, and he could barely breathe as they were crushing him in that room. What was even more sickening to him was the actual silence, you know, in the room, wondering, like, what is going on? Did I just do something that will actually, you know, have these people turn on me? He wasn't sure if he had offended them, and the atmosphere was just so thick. When he finished reading those 17 verses, a man looked at him and demanded to know, why didn't you tell us this before? And then another one spoke up and said, nobody bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. And then another person spoke up and said, it's only real people that have genealogical tables. Then a fourth person got up and shouted, that means that Jesus must be a real person. And then another person observed that and said, 14 generations, that's counted on two hands and a foot from Abraham to King David. And then another two hands and a feet to get to the time of the exile. And then another two hands and a feet to get to the time of the coming of Jesus. And they looked at each other and said, that is a long time. That is a very long time. And then another person spoke up and says, yes, not a single one of our ancestors goes back two hands and a foot three times. This means that Jesus must have been a real man on this earth then, and he is clearly not the white man's magic. Then what the mission has taught us must be real. You know, I read that account. And I just was floored by it. You know, as I read it, and I thought, do you see the absolute brilliance of God? 
in His timeless Word, what is completely irrelevant to our culture was totally relevant to theirs. See, if the Bible is really God's Word, that it is the product of God Himself written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through human authors to peoples from every tribe, tongue, nation, and century, all people who have ever lived, I would expect then that the Bible must contain truths in it that will resonate with some cultures and truths in it actually that will offend other cultures. If God by definition is an all-powerful, infinite being who is also supremely wise, then by definition I am convinced that His Word by necessity must challenge our limited, finite, cultural and temporally bound thinking. So in fact, if you have a book that claims to be God's Word, but doesn't challenge you one bit, it's probably actually just a product of your culture, and you should check the cover to see whether or not you're reading a novel like Harry Potter instead. You know, the Bible is not like any other book in the world. It doesn't read like a novel. It offends, while at the same time it communicates a deep sense of truth because of the nature of God Himself. All cultures in the world will have to bow before the Word of God and say, I do not measure up to this standard. You correct me. The most arrogant thing we can do as human beings is to dare to sit in the place of judgment and say, God, your word should conform to, the, conform to the pattern that I have established of what I expect of you in my mind. And so I think that we need a sense of humility as we approach the word of God to remember who we are and that we sit under it and not over it. You know, it's with that that... Um, Matthew opens up his gospel laying out for us what is important about Jesus. Not something that's pedantic and reads like a phone book, but actually something which is the lineage of the great king. Look at the text with me here in verse 1. Verse 1 begins with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know, right off the bat, it's very apparent who the main character is actually in this book. And you know it's Jesus now, just for those of you who don't know, Christ is not his last name. Okay? Christ is a word in Greek which means the anointed one, and it comes from a Hebrew word, a Mashiach, which is what we translate as Messiah, referring to one whom the Jews expected through their Old Testament to come as a savior and a liberator of the Jewish people. And especially since they were living under Roman oppression at the time that Jesus came, an idea of a liberator or a savior was mighty appealing to them. Now, I know that for us, unlike the binumerians, if I simply just read this out loud, very few people in our culture will be convinced of the realness of Jesus. We turn to other sources for our authority. What if I were to read for you instead the words of Dr. Thomas Sheehan, who is a professor at Stanford University, not a Christian, who wrote this. Over the last four decades of historical scholarship on Jesus and his times, whether conducted by Jews, Christians, or non-believers, it has arrived as a strong consensus about what this undeniably historical figure, born circa 4 BCE, died circa 30 CE, and did, said and did, and how he presented himself 
and his message to his Jewish audience. Now, see, Dr. Sheehan does not believe in miracles or that Jesus rose from the dead. But what is really clear from this is that he, along with many other experts, Christian and non-Christian throughout the academic world, all say Jesus was a real legitimate person. And to those of us who grow up in places like North America and respect institutions of higher learning, when scholars say something, generally we listen. Three letters behind your name goes a long way, especially if you have groups of these people. But the question for us then, okay, is even if Jesus is real, the question is, was he who he says he is in the Gospels? Jesus was far more than just a wise teacher as we make him out to be in our culture. He made some astounding claims like that he was the son of God, that he was an individual who came to save people and that there was no other way to salvation or to God the Father except through him. If you read the words of the real Jesus, there is no way that you can patronize him and simply call him a wise teacher. He was either an absolute lunatic or he was the Lord God himself. You can't have it both ways. If he really is the eternal king who God promised to rule the world, then everything about his life totally matters to you and I. You know what's fascinating here is that in verse 1, uh, Matthew introduces us to him with two significant titles. One, the son of David, and the second title as the son of Abraham. Let me take those one at a time, dealing with the son of Abraham first. Okay. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham turns out to be a very significant figure. When you read that text, you hear about how God called this ancient patriarch out of the land of the Chaldeans and leads him out into the wilderness, promising him that if Abraham follows him, he will make him a great nation and give him descendants as great as the sand on the seashore. And as time goes on, you know, Abraham's, uh, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled and he becomes a huge nation but the question still remains is, how can one person, one man, or his line ever be a blessing to all the world? In fact, God says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And you have to stop and think, how can a single family line do that, be a blessing to every single person on earth? And it's not until we get to the work and person of Jesus Christ can we understand that Jesus, as the true son of Abraham, who comes to save humanity from their sins and is Abraham's truest offspring, can make that promise come true. So this is the way that Abraham, that promise given to him, is fulfilled in having Jesus, who is a blessing to all by saving all of humanity from the wrath of God. Now that's one. The second title that's given here is the son of David. Now, if you know your Bible and you read back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you will read of something that is called the Davidic Covenant. Now, the Davidic Covenant was a promise given to King David. One day, King David was looking at the, uh, the fact that God did not have a place to be worshipped in. There was this tabernacle, this tent, and he thought to himself, let me make a permanent place for God to be worshipped. Let me build him a splendid temple. But God looks at that and says, No, David, you are not to build that temple, but your son is. But in your zeal to worship me and to build something for me, let me do you one better. Let me build for you, David, instead of a house. I will build you a house not out of stone, but I will build you a lineage, an entire line and a descendants and of descendants and kings who will come from you. And one of your sons is going to reign on a throne forever, and your throne will never, ever see an end. We call this in the Bible the Davidic Covenant. And 
when Matthew writes here that Jesus is the son of David, what he is saying to us is that Jesus is the promised king who will reign forever. So for those of you who are writing in your outlines, I put these first two points, okay? One is that, first of all, Jesus is real, and the second one here is that Jesus is the promised king who will reign forever, the one who sits on David's throne. This is what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promises through Abraham and David and the rest of the scriptures we're pointing forward to. He is not an accident. Now, if that is the case, and Matthew is trying to make a case for him being king, do you see why a genealogy or establishing the pedigree of Jesus is so important? It's so important because if he doesn't have the right lineage, he's an usurper. He has no right to sit on the throne. He's just another individual. He cannot possibly be the eternal king. Now, what is interesting about this text is that the way that this text begins is very similar to the way that Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 begins. Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 reads this way. It says, this is the book of the generation of Adam. Now, if you look at this text in uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and look at just uh, the language that's used there, it's actually identical to the language that Matthew uses to begin his gospel. Now, if you know Genesis chapter 5, what it's talking about with Adam here is it's talking about how all the generations of humanity unfolded from Adam, basically all the genealogy that comes from Adam's line. When Matthew uses this phrase here, what he's basically saying is that he is trying to echo Genesis and say, just as people came from Adam, and that was the new beginning of humanity, so also in Jesus Christ, you should expect a new type of beginning, a new hope that has dawned in the coming of this Messiah and this King. This is hope for a humanity that has been absolutely devastated by the effects of sin. And it's with this expectation and these echoes of Genesis, Matthew's saying, let me talk to you about a new beginning, a new Adam, that he launches into the next uh, names of his genealogy, about him being the rightful king. You know, what's really interesting as you read this genealogy is that when you follow Matthew's use of the Old Testament and whatever sources he had, it becomes very apparent that though he's trying to establish the lineage of Jesus, the genealogy that he gives us is not a comprehensive one, but it's actually a highly selective one. In fact, Matthew doesn't just omit names in this genealogy, he actually includes a few odd things as well. See, the genealogy given here is not just for the purpose of proving that Jesus is the righteous king. It actually goes beyond that. He's actually also trying to communicate to us what kind of king this Jesus is. Now, you know that Jesus offers hope to the home, hope to the hopeless. We talk about this as Christians, but I think this is actually built into his very line, and Matthew capitalizes on this theme, hope to the hopeless, hope to the Gentiles, hope to people who are distanced from God, by talking about key individuals in the genealogy. So, for example, if you look through this, and you look at Isaac, for instance, who is the son of Abraham, you will know that his name in Hebrew actually means, he laughs. And you might ask, that's a strange name to name a child. Why would you name a child like that? Well, the answer is because of how he was conceived. Sarah was told that one day she would conceive and have a child, and because she was 90 years old, she laughed. Now, I don't know of any 90-year-old women who have conceived in the last little while, not even with the advent of medical technologies. So it's quite understandable why someone would find that unbelievable. 
But this is God that we are talking about here. You know what's remarkable about this account is that though Sarah actually laughs, God doesn't strike her dead or curse her or anything, but instead deals with her weakness and gives her an incredibly gracious gift. Though she laughed, I think, in bitter hopelessness, God looked at her instead and gave her a chubby, laughing little baby boy so that every time she called his name, he laughs, come here, she will be reminded that though she laughed in hopelessness at God, God gave her, laughed at her in joy and gave her a little bundle of grace instead so that every time she said his name, she would be reminded of the goodness and graciousness of her king. You know, Jacob also is another crazy case as well. His name in Hebrew actually literally means the one who grabs or deceiver. I, I honestly don't know what his parents were thinking in naming him like that. No kid parent I know would name their kids like that. I mean, but he literally lived up to his name. He stole his brother's birthright. He lied to his dad and eventually had to run away because his brother wanted to kill him. And yet, through the course of several decades, God transforms him into an individual who walks humbly before him and becomes a patriarch of Israel. That's redemption at its finest. Judah, the next one in the line, and his brothers, Judah is really no better. Like, I know that most of us growing up probably fought with our siblings, but when you talk about sibling rivalry or problems, you have nothing on the children of, of, of Jacob or Israel. None of you, I'm sure, ever had a brother who tried to sell you into slavery and then lied to your parents and said that you were actually dead. That would be Pretty terrible. <laughs> Some of you are telling me your family's got issues. This is absolute dysfunction here. And yet, you see, through the course of Judah's life, God transforms him from an individual who is willing to sell out his own brother and make him a slave for some money into an individual at the end of his life who is willing to give his own life for his brother Benjamin uh, so that uh, his father might live. It's very, very different. God has a way of working on human beings, taking absolute wretches and turning them into individuals who have an immense amount of hope and are useful in his service. You know, the weird thing about this genealogy that's given is that genealogies are all generally the line traced through the male. And yet, Matthew in this genealogy lists very specifically four women. Now, the last one in that list, Mary, is the mother of Jesus, and she conceives through a virgin birth, which is spectacular. But the other the three women are of some questionable lineage and also a questionable sort of character. Ruth was a Moabitess. And if you know anything about how the Moabitesses came, Moabites came into being, it's because of an incestuous union between Lot and his daughter. And when you look at Rahab, she was a prostitute in Jericho and eventually came to be saved by the Israelites and married into the people of Israel and became one of the mothers or an ancestor of Jesus. You look at another one in here, Bathsheba, who's not even named, right? It's not even about her name. It's about what David did. The writer, Matthew, doesn't even call her Bathsheba, but just simply says, David fathered Solomon and Solomon was fathered through the wife of Uriah. So it's like David's adultery is stuck right there in the middle of the text, in the line of the Messiah. Honestly, if you were trying to write a nice lineage for a messianic figure that you were trying to invent, you would not put these kind of people into the lineage. Unless, of course, it was true. Matthew holds nothing back here. Now, let me be clear that not all were absolutely terrible in this period. You read the rest of the names in this account, like uh, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, 
uh, and all these people, uh, they seem fairly decent characters. You read about Nashon in the book of Chronicles. He is kind of a princely figure uh, to the Israelites of the sons of Judah. Boaz is a godly man who redeems Ruth and Naomi and ends up fathering Obed, who fathers Jesse and gives birth to David, who is the king. So there's a lot of good as well going on in this period. Now, all this to say is that Jesus' line contains some very, very messed up people whom God redeemed. And I think the reason that Matthew mentions it is because it's to give us a foretaste and a foreshadowing of this is in Jesus' line because this is the type of people that Jesus has come to redeem. Although there was dysfunction, this was still a period of development and growth in which God was working out his sovereign purposes in human history to prepare the way for a king. Now, when you read the next four verses, verses 7 to 11, that is list number two here, uh, this list actually documents both good and bad kings, but I think overall it represents a period of decline in Israelite history. Now, Solomon started off as a good king, but he ends up going really bad. His son Rehoboam is even worse, rejecting the advice of his old counselors and listening to the advice of the young men, and he so ostracizes the people that the kingdom divides into two and he loses ten of the tribes of Israel who go off to start their own separate kingdom. Abijah after him was a bad king. You have Asa and Jehoshaphat who are good kings and then there afterwards there's a mix of everything from Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh who are good and then others as well who are bad. Seems to go back and forth. Overall, all this to say is that this is a period of decline as the kings, one after another, fail to live up to the expectations of a Davidic Messiah, of an eternal king who will reign forever. Now, this decline hits its absolute rock bottom when you get to list three, when we talk about the Babylonian exile. As a result of breaking the covenant of God, God brought all upon them the curses of the law, and the children of Israel were captured, Jerusalem was raised, and they were taken away by a Babylonian army to live in 70 years of captivity. Now, this third list of people that we have here in verses 12 to 16 contains a whole bunch of names like Abiyud, Eliakim, Akim, and so on. Most of these people we actually know nothing about in the Bible. If you try to search through the scriptures for their names, they don't appear anywhere else. We know nothing about them. Except for Zerubbabel, who is, of course, a famous character, but everyone else here is virtually unknown. And I think this list actually mirrors exactly what was going on on the divine timetable. This period was a period of the last prophets. After Malachi finished prophesying in some 400-something B.C., every all the Jews knew that the prophets disappeared. And for some 400 years, there was an absolute period of silence in which there were no new revelations from God, and God had stopped speaking, writing new scripture to his people. Like This is a period that I think just mirrors the fact that we have unknown characters in Matthew's genealogy. It was a period of silence. It was a period, I think, characterized by darkness, divine darkness, if that. And this is what makes verse 17 so fascinating in the coming of Christ. Now, verse 17, if you read it, uh, talks about three distinct periods. That is the period from Abraham to David, and then from David to the Babylonian exile, and from Babylonian exile, then afterwards to the coming of Jesus. And Matthew very clearly notes for us 14, 14, and 14. Now, if you think about this, given what I've already mentioned about this not being a comprehensive genealogy, we know that this isn't statistically true. 
For example, in list one, if we were to look at it and measure it according to the account in Second Kings, it's very clear that between the kings Joram and Uzziah, three kings, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, have been intentionally left out. Also, you read afterwards between Josiah and Jeconiah, there's another two kings that are missing. Now, I think Matthew is still okay to use the word fathered, and he's not making an error here, because in the Hebrew mind, to say someone fathered someone does not mean they had to be a direct father of, but it could mean ancestor of. So I don't think Matthew is making a mistake. But the question for us remains is, why would he do this? Why does he intentionally leave out names to make the nice number 14? Was he like just biblically illiterate and he couldn't read his Bible and he had forgotten these things and had once he had written it out, had no eraser and said, well, I just got to leave it the way that it is and send it out? I don't think so. And the reason why I think that is highly unlikely is because Matthew, I think, displays an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament. Because shortly after this, he's going to quote from place after place after place in the prophets and so on about how Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. So I'm going to assume, for the sake of argument, that Matthew was not a dummy and that this was not an oversight and that he had a reason for doing this. Now, the second thing which is interesting about this is that if you take 14 times 3, that is very clearly 42. But if you were to count this, you will realize there are only actually 41 names in this account before we get to Jesus. Now, again, we have to stop and ask the question, why is this? Because 41 is not 42. Did Matthew have the mathematical skills of a preschooler? Again, I would say, I don't think so. And I think this is also intentional. First, we saw already that he had clearly intentionally removed names for the list to make it 14. And secondly, there's a way to solve this. And that is, if you take David, I think, as being a special individual who's clearly designated as the king, and you use him as the end of list one as that king, and also use him as the start of list two, you get a very even 14, 14, and 14 afterwards. So in other words, what Matthew has done, I think, is he's using David twice in his count. And I think given how important the theme of the son of David is all throughout his gospel, I think this actually makes sense. Now, I agree with scholars who say that Matthew's grouping of 14, 14, and 14 would have served as a memory aid for people who were living in that oral culture and would have had to recite the gospel, you know, from memory. Remember that only the very rich had access to books. You didn't have smartphones. You couldn't even download the Bible. So what did you have to do? You had to sit around and have somebody read the Bible, and then you had to commit it to memory. So I agree that 14, 14, 14 gives you kind of the essence of a genealogy would have been very helpful as a memory aid and device. But I don't think that's exactly all that Matthew was doing here. Now, if we assume that Matthew's Old Testament skills and his math skills were both good, I think it's clear that what is happening here is that Matthew is not trying to make a statistical point about the number specifically of descendants that were in Jesus' line, but rather he is trying to make a theological point. In other words, he has handpicked three different groups of people to tell us something about how human history under the sovereignty of God relates to Jesus as the Messiah. But before we go into that, let me just talk a bit about the significance of the number seven and the number three. Now, the number of seven 
is even in our culture considered and known by many magicians as the favorite number of most people. It's a number that most people are likely to pick when you ask them, pick a number between 1 and 10. But since ancient times, the number 7 has always held specific uh, special significance pretty much to all cultures. There are seven wonders of the ancient world. There are the seven seas that represents the seas of the earth. Seven is the greatest single digit uh, prime number that we have. In the Bible, it's no different. You see things like the seven spirits of God, the seven days of creation. You read about this letter to the seven churches in Revelation. All this to say is, what does seven mean when we look at it from a biblical lens? Seven is important because it represents divine perfection. Anything that has seven in it carries with it or is stamped with a mark or the finger of God. But what's interesting about our text is that we don't actually have the number seven, is we have a doubling of seven, which is the number 14 instead. And so we have to stop and ask and say, is there any biblical info that we can have that talks about what the significance is of double seven or 14? And I think there is actually. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you read Genesis 41, which is the account of Joseph interacting with a pharaoh and interpreting his, disease, his dreams, I think we actually get a clue. In the first dream that, pharaoh inter that Joseph interprets for the pharaoh, he tells him that there, pharaoh sees that there are seven fat, calf, fat cows that are eaten up by seven skinny cows. And after that, in dream number two, there are seven large ears of corn that are eaten up by seven very skinny ears of corn. Joseph, under the inspiration of God, looks at that and interprets it for Pharaoh and says, the seven fat cows and the seven ears of plentiful corn represent seven years of plenty, and the seven afterwards which are skinny represent seven years of divinely orchestrated famine. What you need to understand, Pharaoh, is that God has planned for this. And the fact that this is doubled Twice given to you means that this thing, he says, is sure to actually happen. God will surely make it happen. So I think this is important because if we take this and apply this understanding of seven being divine and a doubling meaning like definite or certain, what I think Matthew is saying here by these 14 is he's saying that in each of these three periods of human history, don't think that they were random. The period from Abraham to David was both definite and it was divinely appointed. No mistakes there. The period afterwards from David to the people going into exile, as terrible as it was, the human sin of the Israelites committing crime against God, don't think that was an accident and that God didn't know about it either. It was definite and it was divinely planned. And in this last period of darkness, this period in which God has stopped speaking, all the way from the exile going up to the coming of Christ, another 14, this period too was divinely orchestrated and it was definite. Make no mistake about it. All of this leading up to the coming of Christ. Now, let me talk about the number of three here, because why three eras in the first place? Well, three, also most of us know, is a number that's important to people, and it's a number of completeness, no matter what culture you go to. For example, you have Indian gurus who talk about human life being uh, rooted in three things, memory, experience, and imagination. For us, when we talk about the passage of time, we talk about past, present, and future, right? We live in a three-dimensional world. Now, do you know why when you're upset as a parent, you look at your child and you say, don't make me count to three. 
Why don't they ever say like, don't make me count to seven or count to two? Most of us know that when you count to seven, it kind of loses its effect. One, two, three, four, five. It doesn't work very well for trying to communicate to your child that something imminent is going to happen if they don't stop what they are doing. Counting to two also makes no sense. It really is too short. Let's jump on two. One, two. And you know, it doesn't, doesn't help. You know, why we intuitively like the number three is because three is actually the minimum number that you need to establish a pattern. So if I say one, two, you have a sense of when three is coming and you know exactly when to jump. Three is necessary for us to feel a sense of rhythm or expectation and a sense of closure. When you get to three, it's all over. It's done. So, you know, it's even a Latin phrase that they used to talk about how important three is. Uh, Omne trium perfectum, which means everything that comes in three is perfect. I really like it. Now, this idea of three in the Bible also carries over. We understand it intuitively, but it's in the scriptures as well, right? God is how many in one? God is three in one. When you're talking about the number of items that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, there were three items that were placed in the Ark. Talking about uh, Jesus as well. When he goes up to fight Satan in the wilderness, he defeats Satan on with the very last three different temptations. So three, I think, just carries this idea also of biblical completeness, just as Jesus spent three days in the grave and then he rose again. Now, we put all this together and apply this to our text. I think what Matthew is noting here is that each of these periods were divine and definite, but the fact that there were three specific periods tells us this, that the work of God through three different periods was final and it was completed. And only after all God's work was completed, he says, could the Messiah come? So Jesus Christ enters this world, not at an accidental time, but according to the divine and eschatological timetable, precisely when God wanted him to come, precisely when God had finished his divine and definitive work with humanity. I like to think of the three periods, if you look at them really as the three Ds, right? You look at the first period from Abraham all the way to David, and I would call that a period of development. Yeah, there were some messed up people and there were some good people as well. But overall, one guy turned into a nation of several million. But then the next period after that, list number two, is the second D, which is a period of decline. They had good kings and bad kings, but they went from great all the way to the mud. And the third period, I think, is really a period of darkness. It's a period in which God stopped speaking. It's a period in which the people have very little hope. And by the end of it, they... They were living under Roman rule and had no autonomy of their own. It was just pure darkness. But it was at this time when the darkness was at its absolute worst, when the night was the blackest, that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, bursts into the stage in human history and shows all of the world that he is here to banish the darkness of death and despair and hopelessness. Jesus comes at precisely the right time as a light to the Gentiles. And Matthew picks up on this theme as well afterwards when he says, on you, a people dwelling in the land of great darkness, on you, he says, a light has dawned. Matthew sees Jesus and he wants the whole world to know that Jesus is the true light of the world. And he comes into human history to solve our greatest problem, and that is humanity's sin and alienation from God. 
Matthew's point here is that in this 14, 14, 14 is when God's perfect work was done in working with human beings. He brought his Savior into the world. Just as Galatians chapter 4 says, right? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son into the world. All this to say is that human history, brothers and sisters, is under the authority and the sovereignty of King Jesus. And all of it exists to magnify him. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world who stands at the center of human history. If you're writing this in your outline, you can put that down. The point is Matthew's division of history is to show the world that history is not random. History is not random. History is driven by God and under his authority. You know, brothers and sisters, as we wrap this up and we think about these things, you know, Israel's three periods of history, this period of development, period of decline, and this period of darkness and death, I think it's really striking that it actually mirrors human existence, don't you think? Human life. You develop as a child, you learn how to talk, you grow up, everything's exciting, right? you get married, you get new friends, new job, and then when you hit your late 20s, that's it. It's downhill from there on. <laughs> I read this week, actually, that the brain starts to decline somewhere in your late 20s, so I'm like, I'm already several years into this, you know. It's, it's, and there's no coming back from it. Just like the kingdoms of kings of Israel went into a decline, so does the human body. There's no reversing the effects of aging. <laughs> And then finally, that last season of life, should you make it to old age, it can feel like darkness. You know, I spent a lot of time in hospitals looking at people, Christian saints who are dying, and though I'm happy in one sense for them, knowing that they're going to be with King Jesus, I can't help but feel a sense of sorrow as well, looking at like, this is not the way the world was meant to be. I look at them like in agony, you know, trying to shoot them up with morphine. I just look at it, I say, God, these are your children. Don't you care about your children? Like the last days, as death comes close, can sometimes be really difficult days. They're painful. It's darkness. And if you don't know Christ, you know, I think death is actually a very frightening thing if you don't know where you're going. And especially more so if you know that you're actually going to face a God who is holy and perfect and will judge you for your sins and you have to stand before him and give an account for how you will be one day. If you were to be measured against all of humanity, how would you fare? Maybe in your culture you think, I'm a great person, but if you were measured against all people who have ever lived, where do you think you would place? Top 50%? Top 20%? Top 10%? Better hope that God is a 50% God, half in heaven and half in hell, maybe you'll make it. But the Bible is very clear to us, right? It's not the top 5% who are going to make it into heaven. The Bible says zero percent, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and are condemned by him to eternal punishment in hell. It's zero. Not a single person has the ability to stand before God and say, God, you owe me. Take me to heaven because I'm good. God would say, if that was the case, why would I have to send my son to die on the cross? You understand how terrible human sin is when you look at the fact that God himself had to come and to pay for our sins and our crimes against God. You know, brothers and sisters, this is why we love Jesus Christ so much. 
We love him because he is the king that came at the right time in history to deal with our greatest problems. He came as a man in the line of Abraham, but not solely as a man conceived in sin like everyone else. Right? Verse 16 says that, you know, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and then, sorry, and then in verse 16 it says, and Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was the Christ. There's a breakage there, right? It's different. It doesn't say that Joseph fathered Jesus. So Jesus came as a man, but not like any man, conceived by a virgin. The one who knew no sin came as a human being solely to bear our sins and to bring us back to God. And Jesus, we know, is the new Adam who begins a new bloodline of people who have been purchased by his very own blood, who are family not because of biological ancestry, but because his blood flows through their veins. You know, I can't tell you who the next Canadian prime minister will be in four years or in eight years or any of that for matter, but I can tell you who the last Canadian prime minister will be. His name will be King Jesus, and he will rule every country in this world. You know, I asked the question, you know, what on earth does a Galilean carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago have anything to do with you today? And the answer to that is, if he's just a man, absolutely nothing. Go home and don't waste your time coming here believing myths and fiction. But if Jesus was actually real and he was the Son of God and today he is alive and lives at the right hand of God, then this Galilean peasant has everything to do with your life because he is your king and demands your absolute allegiance. But take heart if you don't know him. He is not a tyrant, but a gracious king who reaches out to you and offers his very own blood for you so that you might be saved and forgiven of your sins. You know, if that's you today and you wandered in here today because you don't, some friend invited you and you've never heard about Jesus, what I would urge you is to respond to King Jesus. King Jesus asks you to bow the knee to him and to be saved by him and to turn your life completely over to him, to believe the gospel of what he has done for you. Confess to him that you're a sinner who is in need of forgiveness and God will make you new. You know, for those of you brothers and sisters who have loved Jesus and walked with him for many years, this is why we praise him. We praise him because he has orchestrated everything that has happened in our lives. He knows us, he loves us, and he means us well. And he promises one day that no matter how difficult things are for us in this life, life will all make sense one day when we are under his final authority and rulership in his kingdom, where we will never know again sickness, suffering, or the pain of death. And for that, we absolutely praise and him. That is mercy, and that is grace. Let's praise God for what he has given and worship our King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, that you are the ruler over human history and that your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins. We can't thank you enough, God, for what you have done. And I pray, oh God, that if there are people here who want to respond to Jesus, that they would not leave this place without talking to myself or somebody here who can talk to them about Christ. Father, it's all about you. Human history is not random. It's all about your son, Jesus Christ. Everything, God, was leading up to this point. So I pray, Father, you would help us to make much about Jesus and little of ourselves. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.